1: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 178 being recorded on Tuesday, June 18th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And
0: as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Well, we uh, if you've listened to good old episode 177, we had so many listener questions, we could not get to them all. So this is kind of a, a episode two or continuation of that episode. Um, before we jump into listener questions, though, we a while ago on a new show about thirty days ago now we talked about the Chewy S one, uh, and since then Chewy has gone public. So we wanted to give you a quick update on what's going on with Chewy. Won't you take us through it, Jason?
1: Uh, yeah. So they did their IPO. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. It was Friday. Do I have that right? You do. Um, and uh, uh, you'll tell me if this is good or not. I think it is. But they they had announced a, range, a price range for the offering at like 19 and 21 bucks. Um, and they actually uh, came out at $22. Uh, so a little higher than their range um but uh they had a lot of uh good activity and they closed uh at close of uh, trading on Friday it was at 35 bucks which is like a almost a 60% um, pop so uh, that seems like a pretty successful offering uh at least compared with like all the the uber
0: news or the lyft news yeah. Yeah. This is the, um, so I've only been one through, one IPO process and you know what, what so they far. tell you yeah, so far. Yep. Yeah, knock on wood. So what they, what they tell you is this is the, the brain trust at Goldman Sachs and these kind of places is you, you want to, you know, so one school of thought, and this is not what the bankers agree with. So you, you have to kind of navigate your way through all this. So they're, they're obviously you got Fox in-house issues here. One school of thought is you price your IPO at the maximum because that's what's best for the company. Um, The bankers would tell you, look, you're building long-term shareholder relationships. So you want to give these shareholders that take a risk in your company a little bit of a benefit. So you price a little bit lower than kind of where you think it's going to trade. Um, So if we look at Uber and Lyft, they both would be kind of what I think a lot of the bankers would say, kind of broken IPOs where they've traded below their IPO price. and yeah you know, so there therefore, now, if you're someone that participated in the i p o you you feel sheepish because you you kind of came in at let, let's say twenty dollars and now it's trading at eighteen, um, whereas this chewy i p o performed a lot better in in kind of a model the bankers would recommend, so price it. You, you want to kind of put a range out there, kind of price above that range slightly, and then have kind of a good pop and then stay there and then come out with your quarterly results and, and then kind of beat and raise and you're off to the races from there. Then you can do secondary offerings and happy, um, happy shareholders buy more stock and, and all kinds of good things happen. So, so I, I would I kind of tend to think this is the way to do it. And, and they did really well.
1: Yeah. Now a couple of things that make it particularly interesting in the, the sort of commerce retail world. Um, so folks may remember um, Chewy was acquired by PetSmart um, a couple of years ago. And it was a, a big deal at the time. It was a over $3 billion acquisition. Um, and so a, uh, and so then PetSmart is now spinning off Chewy as a separate public company. And so I like, if I uh, am reading my notes correctly, um that that close kind of values the company at, at north of four billion dollars. Fourteen billion dollars rather. So acquire a company for three billion, uh uh take it public at fourteen billion sounds like a pretty exciting um acquisition for acquisition and transition
0: for PetSmart. Do I have that right? It does. Yeah. They're kind of, you know it's almost like a private equity kind of a thing it's unusual for a company to do what they did because usually you fold it in you you know you get rid of the brand over time you make it your e-commerce brand so so you know the to the degree they have integrated it you could argue it creates some risk because you know now in theory um chewy could be acquired maybe um I, I do think that they still own over half so i think they could control that but let's say they do a secondary and over time their ownership gets down you know maybe they need to sell some to pay off debt because all these brick and mortar guys are just swimming in debt um and then you know let's say doomsday scenario amazon acquires chewy <laughs> and you're pet smart and, and that's what's running your e-commerce site then you, you kind of have a you know that could be a really bad day for someone at PetSmart. So it'd be interesting to see what, what happens with that integration. Now that you have these kind of, yeah, the, the Amoeba is being pulled apart here and and how does that work for PetSmart?
1: Yeah. So that's kind of where I was going was like, from a pure financial standpoint, if we look at it as a banker, like it's, it's hard not to see this as a, a win, but, but for your point, um, PetSmart was not a particularly digitally savvy brick-and-mortar retailer prior to this acquisition. So, like, at the time, part of this acquisition was to bring more digital competency to PetSmart. And once the PetSmart team arrived, uh, PetSmart, like, really abdicated digital responsibility to that team. So, like, as far as I understand it, there, there are fewer... Digital people at PetSmart today than there were before the acquisition. So they've they've essentially made themselves extra dependent on Chewy, and it's now not clear what um, responsibility going forward Chewy will have for PetSmart's digital footprint. Like you could imagine, they have a deal to run PetSmart.com. Uh, I haven't explicitly seen that, but that that seems like a logical assumption, but you know, what happens with all the, the sort of omni-channel things. And you know, when PetSmart wants to launch new services or they want to like market the veterinary service, veterinarian services that Chewy doesn't sell, but PetSmart does through their stores. um, Like there, there suddenly isn't like a really strong digital team at PetSmart to be solving the, the sort of digital customer experiences for PetSmart. So it, it, it does. It feels to me like it definitely creates some risk um, for PetSmart, and it'll be interesting whether they they have like Chewy Brain Trust locked up somehow, or whether they're going to try to rebuild their own their own uh, capability there. I it just it's an interesting uh, uh, thing to follow. So I I found that interesting, and then uh, uh, I, my assumption is um, they they kind of felt like they had to do it because they. The the one uh, interesting thing about the Chewy IPO that we haven't mentioned is that that Chewy is losing money, um, and like despite some like phenomenal hockey stick customer acquisition growth and sales growth, and they've over three years they went from under a billion dollars to three point five billion dollars in sales, uh, they still haven't found their way to profitability. So your PetSmart, you own this fast growing money losing venture um and you used a lot of debt to buy them so um like they they're not helping you pay down the debt you used to buy them because they're losing money so by doing that ipo you spent off a bunch of cash and my understanding is the whole ipo like like tried to raise about a billion dollars and 900 million of that went straight to debt from the petsmart acquisition so for your point like It sounds like going public makes it easier to do subsequent raises. So, so maybe that's the way they'll bring more operating cash to, to Chewy, but like there's not a billion dollars in the bank as a result of this IPO that Chewy can now spend on marketing that they didn't have last year or something like that. So it's all very interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch, watch how it all plays out. And then I guess the other thing that's fun for me and you uh, covered this on a previous show a little bit, but like in the process of going uh, public, they disclose a bunch of details that we don't normally get to see. And so like, you know, there are some interesting metrics that came out. Um, They, uh, they do a really good cohort analysis. So they evaluate how sticky their customers are from each year that they acquire them and how valuable those customers are. Um, And so they have a, like in, in their filings, they have a nice, what we call a wedding cake kind of showing Uh, each of those previous year's cohorts growing in value over time. um, And they have some really favorable long-term metrics. Their customer retention is amazing. A big chunk of their customers are on uh, uh, subscriptions. Their longer-term customers are continuing to spend more. And so, like, in general, they're having to spend a lot of money to acquire each new customer, um, but the... The lifetime value of those customers, like, is a a, a significant multiple of that customer acquisition cost. So, so it just it's fun to get an inside peek at a, a pretty big size e commerce business.
0: Yeah, and you know the history of e commerce is littered with companies that that do all this math off of CAC LTV, and they're using kind of you know known LTV they. they Acquire new customers off that known LTV, uh, and then at some point you, you th- your lines kind of cross, and that LTV of that new customer surprisingly goes down over time, because you know in the early days you're you're bringing in these these early adopters and they're advocates and they stick around, and then these later customers you acquire, you know maybe they're just sampling and and that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to you know, see. At the same time, everyone's always applying data science and machine learning all these new technologies to try to fight all those trends so it'll it'll be interesting to see how they do uh, another big thing when you go public is you have to decide which of these metrics you're going to publish and it's a it's a pretty tricky thing because you kind of you know you kind of have to think well if I put that metric out there and it starts to go down that's bad um so you can you can actually have much different and and you should have different kind of KPIs you put out in the S1 versus on your quarterly. So we'll cover the first quarterly, and it'll be interesting to see if they if they continue with a really transparent view of CAC LTV, because in the S1, they, they had some really good data on that. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fun to see. Cool. Well, uh, I'm springing this on you, but did you have a chance to look at the big Facebook crypto announcement today, their Libra um, new cryptocurrency? Uh,
1: yeah, you shouldn't spring stuff on me, because no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> i've uh, been on a plane all day so i just, ah. just uh, rushed to the hotel room uh to get to uh, chat with you so tell us about it
0: well uh i'll just point point listeners to it the uh the immediate reaction uh from regulators was oh heck no so uh you know there's like quotes from the eu and and you know both parties in the US saying we're not really sure we trust Facebook with this. Um so that, that's kind of I'm still digesting it. You know, it looks like they've had a big team here. Um the guy they got from PayPal that they put on chat, uh Dave, uh I forget his name, he's leading this. So it, it's a big, pretty big initiative at Facebook. Um it's what's called a constant uh, constant uh, coin, so it, it's kind of got a, a an individual value versus versus like the U.S. dollar does, um, versus floating around. So, so reading through the white paper, it looks like it's going it, it's going after being a payment mechanism, kind of like miles and that kind of thing. So, an intermediate payment mechanism for people, you know, within the Facebook network. Um, they do have several people that have signed on to this kind of governing body. Uh, I think I saw eBay was announced today is also looking at it. Um, the implication being that the, the companies signed into this governing body um, will ultimately take this currency, um, you know, you know, along with the U.S. dollar and other payments down the road. So it just feels like it's going to be more of a payment thing, and it's going to be interesting to watch to see how it goes.
1: So, do you think the the Winklevoss twins will be all in, and this will be the Zuckerberg Winklevoss reunion?
0: There actually was an article where they have had something to do with it. Um, oh, so the irony! I, I know that's comp. Let me see if I can find that. Uh, I think that they were asked to opine on it because they they have put a lot of stuff into the crypto thing.
1: I don't know. We'll we'll see how it all plays out. Like superficially, I I simultaneously am surprised and admire, uh, Facebook's ability to sort of ignore their current, um, situation and launching new products. So I, I do, I do feel like vis-a-vis the other big technology giants, like Facebook is at the biggest sort of trust deficit of all of them. And yet they continue to launch products that like, at their core require like this really strong level of, of consumer trust for adoption. So like launching portal and putting like a microphone and camera in everyone's living room and launching a cryptocurrency, like that there's some chutzpah to doing those kind of launches when it, it, it feels like you're, you're uh, not exactly killing it in terms of earning your, your user's trust.
0: Yep. Okay. One of our, uh, one of our many interns just looked this up and um, they actually, so facebook had talked to the zuckerbergs they have an exchange called gemini uh and they're not sure they're gonna work together but the winklevoss folks said uh you know it's time to let bygones be gone bygones and we will probably be frenemies all right so yeah very millennial way to address it
1: let's jump into listener questions Listener questions.
0: Yeah, so we are. So we covered four last time. So we're going to start out here with number five. This one's from Nick Barrett, and it came through Facebook. Uh, I believe Nick uh, is from Australia or New Zealand. So I don't know if that puts it in context, but there you go. Uh, And I think he works for this uh, company called Mighty Ape, which is kind of like. Uh, a GameStop, uh, it's like an FYE, um, kind of, as, if I recall, uh, to put it in an American kind of context. Uh, all right. I'd be interested to hear your guys' thoughts on how an established e-commerce store could expand into new product categories. Is it a good idea to launch new niche websites through Shopify to do this, or is it better to keep focus within a single e-commerce site and expand within them? Um, so I'll take a stab at this. Uh, it it kind of depends. So. I'll use a I'll, I'll use a metaphor here of orbits, right? So, so at the at the at the center of this orbit is your existing customer and your existing e-commerce experience. I think customers will you know pretty easily let you go one or two orbits out. If you start to go three or four orbits out, then you really need to start thinking about that customer's buying experience and the messaging. It doesn't make sense to have it kind of tied to something on a a, a closer orbit to what you're doing today. So I'll use an example. It looks like um, Mighty Ape is selling games, collectibles, those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, another example of a store like yours is ThinkGeek here in the U.S. And, you know, ThinkGeek did a really good job of, of starting with, you know, mostly kind of collectible stuff and then bringing in toys and life-size figures and then then going deep into categories so then in the store they and online they have a pretty deep star wars category a harry potter category etc and then online um you know they've gone and created they they go and license the brands and then there's there's actually um so i'm actually deep in this category (laughs) so within the star wars world they they kind of cleverly came up with a sleeping bag that looks like a tauntaun, and so they they kind of got so deep into this vertical, they were actually kind of able to come up with their own products around that. Um, but you wouldn't go in there expecting to find a non geeky pizza oven or something strange like that. So so you know so to the same argument, if if you guys wanted to add kind of your, you know, your own private label collectibles. I would keep that in the main site. If let's say you wanted to get into something totally out of what you're doing today, like, I don't know, sporting goods or hammocks or something like that, then I I do think, you know, having another e-commerce site is the way to do it. The, you know, what, um, you know, what you didn't ask specifically, but I'll, I'll kind of kind of keep pulling the thread, is how do you find what to add? And, and this is where it's really interesting. So at Channel Advisor, we have 3,000 customers, and you know the overwhelming majority of them are super entrepreneurial. And it's always fascinating to me to find out how they figure out what products to sell. Uh, A lot of them spend a lot of time um, data mining. So they'll go through comments, uh, uh, you know, uh, feedback on products. They look at null search results. That's a really cool place on your own website to go find things. You know, what are people searching for on your website and not finding? Um, That's really interesting kind of area to learn a lot about consumer behavior. Uh, A lot of them use tools like Camel, Camel, Camel. There's one called jungle scout. Um, and then there you can go look at Amazon's data. Uh, my favorite example, uh, it won't surprise listeners is a star Wars example. So these guys, um, are are a customer and they like, like kind of a GameStop and FYE, et cetera. They, they sold a lot of star Wars stuff and they were trying to look for new products and they had a license with Lucasfilm to do, um, let's see, they had the, the image of Hansel and carbonite that they could put on almost anything. They did a phone case and it ended up being really popular. Um, But they started kind of poking around and using some of these tools, they went in the Star Wars category of Amazon and found there's all these people looking for um, Star Wars beach towels. You know, when you're uh, out in your bathing suit uh, on the beach, you always obviously want a Star Wars towel. So, <laughs> so they came out with Han Solo and Carbonite on a beach towel. You know, a really big one. So it looks really cool when it's on the beach because you've got kind of Han Solo and Carbonite laying in the sand there. Um, and that became a top-selling product on Amazon very quickly. And they 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 actually developed that product by looking at null search results and finding those little imbalances between supply and demand that people are looking for. And they they Use that to create a product extension. The the most famous one's Anchor. So, A N K E R is an electronics company. And kind of the urban legend there is they, they, you know, um, I think they're in China or Taiwan. They started mining the Amazon feedback, and people would buy, you know, uh, chargers and accessories. And they would always say, Well, I'm glad this has two USB ports, but I have six devices uh, looking at you, Jason. And, you know, I really wish you you had a, you know, A, it charged faster and B, it had more ports. Um, So I think a lot of the anchored kind of, at least the early products were developed off skimming and parsing and really understanding the Amazon product feedback uh, and then saying, all right, this product got three stars. Why can we develop a product, our own, that's got five stars and address the consumer's gaps there?
1: Yeah. Um, and I mostly agree. A uh, side note on Anchor, like I literally have to have Anchor products delivered to a a mail stop because my wife has banned me from buying more cables. <laughs> <laughs> so, side note Anchor totally has my number. Um, and one piece of bad news for you, Scott I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Think Inc. was purchased by GameStop and effective July 2nd, they're shutting it down.
0: Oh, man, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So it's now going to be a, a section of uh GameStop versus a separate site. So uh, well, again, are the guys to close the stores? Uh, I don't know. Um, but maybe per your point uh, and, and per Nick's original question, like game GameStop's hoping to uh, aggregate that traffic from their site and ThinkGeek and do more effective cross-selling because like, basically I agree with your answer, but um I would almost come to it from the opposite end. I would just say uh, it's extremely hard. There are very few businesses that can be very profitable by selling a single item in a cart. And there are very few businesses that can be profitable by only selling an item once to a customer. And so in general you're looking for businesses where you have multiple products for the customer to put it in cart and you have a reason for the customer to come back and shop from you multiple times. And so to me, that means looking at your existing customer base as you suggested and finding adjacent products, uh, that might also appeal to those, those customers. Um, and in the early days of e-commerce, there was, uh, this artificial thing, uh, SEO uh, from Google search engine optimization, very much favored keyword stuffing in the URL. And so you saw a lot of individual sites that were selling one item and they named the URL after the item they were selling. And that, and for a while that that could be very effective. Um, Google's, dramatically depreciated the the effect of keywords in the url so you know it now makes more sense to aggregate as much traffic you as you can on a single url and sell a bunch of stuff um and w- but what i would suggest is having a lot of different content for that different stuff and different landing pages for that different stuff so for your point if you're selling uh video star wars video games over here and star wars beach towels over there you might have separate landing pages for those two and you might have separate like digital marketing campaigns for those two um so it kind of feels like a separate site in that sense but once you get there and get that beach towel i can I can try to cross sell you the video games and try to make you a a bigger more valuable customer so I guess that's that's the way I would think of it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a fun fact. Um, two big companies were created off that craze where you're know, just putting one product on a domain name, um, Hayneedle and Wayfair. Um, so Wayfair had like coffee tables, kitchen tables, you know, dining chairs. They had all these furniture things and you would go to dining chairs and it'd be like just dining chairs, a slice of their thing. And they ended up rolling all that stuff up, both of them did, and, and getting rid of that strategy when, when Google changed the algorithm. Question number six is from Rebecca Saunders. Have you seen any recent data on the cost of customer acquisition? So this is a, a CAC question, which we just kind of uh, covered uh, there with Chewy, uh, online via the various channels and how these have changed over time. I hear a lot anecdotally, but haven't managed to access any reliable data. Thanks in advance. Love the show, by the way, all the way from rainy London. Uh, well, thanks for the
1: question, Rebecca. I'm answering from rainy Seattle today. Yeah. Um, and I my sad answer is generally no. Like there there are people that publish sort of some industry data on customer acquisition, but I would submit to you that it's almost completely useless um, because the variance depending on the the specific industry and the specific customer circumstances are so great that looking at these Averages are are somewhat meaningless, um, and so you know you you both have like you know companies that are selling um, individual packs of band aids you know for three dollars online, and uh, guess what your customer acquisition cost has to be extremely low when you're selling a three dollar item with free shipping, um, and you have customers selling uh, ten thousand dollar diamond rings, and not surprisingly the the customer acquisition uh, cost can be much higher for that. If you're a company that's already doing billions of dollars in sales, like you, um, to get meaningful growth, you have to uh, reach a really broad audience, and that tends to uh, be more expensive per user for customer acquisition. If you're a small startup, um, you can very cost effectively acquire some really valuable customers, so your customer acquisition ends up being a lot lower. So. Um, as much as I'd love to uh, point you at a particular resource and say, Hey, just check out these numbers. Um, Like, I really don't feel like other companies numbers are, unless they're a direct competitor of yours somehow are likely to be that useful to you. Um, I will tell you, you know, we, I was digging into that Chewy S1 a little bit. um, And, and for example, in 2017, Chewy added about 3.7 million new customers. And then they added 3.8 million new customers in 2018. For those 2017 customers, they spent about 60 bucks a customer to acquire them. And for those 2018 customers, they spent $101 a customer. Um, so there, there are not a lot of businesses that are much smaller in scale than Chewy that could afford that kind of customer acquisition costs. Um, but if you look at Chewy's uh, lifetime value and the, the spends of previous cohorts, if these new cohorts behave for Chewy the way the previous ones did as, as Scott sort of alluded to earlier, then like even spending a hundred dollars a customer could be, um, a, a prudent investment. Like, a, it's a risky one. So, so we're going to have to wait and see, but I would definitely not look at Chewy's numbers and go, Oh gosh, for my business, I should spend a hundred bucks a customer because
0: it worked for Chewy. Yeah. And, um, some of this gets into, to your point, the reason it's hard to compare your business with someone else is, you know, not only are you in different categories and everything, but every online business has different theology around this. So, so I've met, you know, super entrepreneurial businesses where they essentially say, look, if I can spend a dollar and make three, I will I will consider almost cogs and I will have an unlimited budget. Um, uh, it, other people kind of say you know, they kind of come from an advertising view and they, um, so people that come from marketplaces, they tend to have that COGS kind of mentality because they're looking at it as a percentage of sales. People that come at it from the ad agency world, they're looking at a return on ad spend, which is kind of like the inverse of take rate. And they'll say, look, I'm going to have a budget. I'm going to manage that budget to a 4X or whatever it is, return on ad spend. Um, So it's really, really part of its theology. And and then, um, you know, some of it is, other times I've seen really big companies where the CEO says, "I want to be number one in strollers," and then you say, "Well, that's insanely expensive, and you'll never make money." They'll say, "I want to be number one in strollers," and you know, so so you're kind of like, "All right, so so there's you know at some times in big companies, it doesn't matter because when the boss looks at strollers and your stroller's not there, you're going to get fired. So you don't really care what you spend, um, or you know they they're building a brand and they don't really care about a transactional. Kind of a, a ROI on on the spend there, um, so it's a little bit all over the map and, and hard hard to nail down, um, and it it does kind of depend, in my experience, where people come from if they come from that ad world or that marketplace world. Yep, for sure. What uh, what's your view on return on ad spend, Jason?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I tend to be sort of green eye shade out of uh, about it. I I like to. Um, have a a pretty short return uh, on, on ad spend to make the investment. Um, The, because frankly, like the more expensive the customer is to acquire the least likely the customer is to be very loyal. So in general, I like those customers I can earn organically um, and cultivate a lot more than the customers that I have to go out and buy. So like, you know, per, per Mary Meeker's um, uh, suggestion, I'd way rather have some sort of freemium model where I have customers coming to me and trying to use my product uh uh for free on a limited basis and then turn them into paid customers and, and sort of do growth hacking um than spend a fortune uh buying a customer and trying to monetize those. Now that being said, I work for a giant ad company and that's mostly what we what we do for clients. <laughs> <laughs> is help them, uh, spend a bunch of money to, uh, to acquire customers. Um, and it it absolutely can work. Um, it's, you know, again, it, it's somewhat, uh, related to your risk profile and, and comfort level. I will say the one thing, one nice thing about being a small company, a lot of my clients are very large and, and they have to acquire huge audiences. Um, and the, the, the markets that have huge audiences that have inventory are, um, Tend to be pretty efficient, so it's really hard to get a good deal. But one of the nice things about being a small company is um, you can play in a lot of small customer acquisition formats where uh, the market isn't very efficient yet, and you can uh, often get outside returns. So, you know, being a an early player on Instagram. Um, when people weren't advertising on Instagram was a great way to make money or being a, you know, a, a really excellent uh, executor on Pinterest um, or even like fractional television versus having to buy Super Bowl spots or different things like that. Like there there are definitely ways to sort of piecemeal together audiences that get an outside return as long as you can get by with a, a relatively modest audience size. But, you know, as soon as you get into having to acquire. 4 million new customers a year to, to hit your numbers, like you're, you're pretty much stuck paying the market rate for customer acquisition.
0: Yeah. Where, where I've seen small businesses get upside down on this is they, they take kind of an Amazon eBay way of looking at things. They apply it to Google and they kind of think, all right, I, I just spent 20% to acquire this customer. And then what they don't realize is the next time that customer comes through, they're going to probably come through Google. Um, so, You know, and then now you've paid another 20% on that one. And so so another way of saying it is if if you think you're acquiring the customer for a hundred and from Google and you're getting a $300 kind of LTV, but then they're hitting Google twice more and you're paying another couple hundred bucks, then that can get upside down on you really quickly. So, so you have to get, especially with the CPC stuff and, and, you know, and then CPM, you have to be real careful with, with how you're measuring all that. Uh, For sure. Question number seven, uh, this is from Amit Agarwal. Have you ever done some research on e-commerce subscriptions such as Amazon subscribe and save or AutoShip? Also, what is the industry trends for BarkBox, HelloFresh and other bundle subscriptions?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I'll be curious what Scott's answer is because I'm always looking for better data in this category than I have. Um, in general, I would say like there is not a lot of terrific data, um, it's it's the usual story like there are these third party data aggregators that do things like customer surveys and things to try to give us some data or uh there's the you know receipt scrapers um uh like 1010 data or slice or rocketon um and they they can give us some insight into like how amazon subscribe and save is performing versus individual products um but but uh those are like directional at best i haven't seen awesome data there uh there's one of the reasons that chewy s1 was kind of fun uh chewy's um and I, I forget what their trade name is for their subscription program but 67% of all chewy's revenue comes from the subscription program um and as we talked about in one of the previous answers you know the real key to to profitability in an e-commerce business is about um repeat purchases and customer retention and like there's no better flavor of customer retention than auto ship um and so like uh i'm a big fan of the tactic i haven't always had the best uh third party vow va- uh data to validate that tactic um the second half of your question i will i will say uh, uh you ask about uh some of the the well-known subscription offers out there like bark box and hello fresh um, There's a general sense uh, that it's been hard to scale those subscription services and that customer retention hasn't been awesome. Um, And so there's this phenomenon called subscription fatigue. um, And in general, the, the subscription services tend to have a lot of churn. So they don't um, maintain all of last year's subscriptions and add a bunch of new ones, and so there's kind of a, a dirty little secret amongst the the companies we tend to think of as subscription companies um, that are successful. And that dirty little secret is most of them are, have an offering that's not subscription based, that's on demand ordering, um, and the bulk of their revenue tends to come from that on demand ordering. So, you know, Stitch Fix, the bulk of their revenue is from uh, you know, people that are ordering uh, uh fixes on demand rather than have a a a recurring uh a box coming all the time and uh in the the uh my understanding is that Bark Box and Dollar Shave Club and Harry's have all had like pretty big churn on their subscription lists. I think when uh, Harry's got acquired, it came to light that eighty percent of Harry's revenue was from their their retail deals, so people walking in a Target and buying Harry's razors rather than being on the, the, the subscription program. Um, so I would say like subscriptions are a really valuable thing to try to achieve. And, uh, there definitely is evidence that Amazon's program is really potent. seems like Chewy has a really potent program. Um, but you know, you probably need to be careful about assuming it's easy or that you'll have great, great customer retention from doing it.
0: Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, just a couple additions. It, it seems to work well in anything that's replenishable. Um, I do think it's kind of jumped the shark. Like I, I, see tons of new subscription programs for coffee and beer and wine. You know, it just feels like you know we're probably past the the subscription craze. Um, if you're interested in the topic, uh, you know, again, one of the nerdy things I recommend is when companies go public and they file that S one that that is like a gold mine of data and and it's if you're interested in these topics if you can find a company that has an s1 out there it's really a, a good read because you know you're you're dealing with these companies that have managed a business like what we're talking about up to the point where it's at a pretty good scale so 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 they're kind of on generation 8 thinking and you know, not to pick on you a bit, but if I was going to start a subscription bundle, I'd be on generation one thinking, right? Um, so, so a couple I've read and really enjoyed, uh, Stitch Fix, uh, I would say, you know, there was a lot of, uh, negative sentiment around Stitch Fix and they've proved their critics pretty wrong, um, with the success they've had. Um, their S1 is a really, really good read. Um, and then when I, when you read an S1, um, it's kind of like a, a poop sandwich. So, so, you know, the, it the, the, where the bread is the poop and the good stuff's on the inside. And you have to kind of like dig in and find it. The, the part you want to read on this one is skip all the way to management's um, discussion. And in there, in the stitch fix one, it's a textbook on how they think about their cohorts and, and how they fight those trends Jason's talking about. How do you, you know, how, how do you make the algorithm better, and how do you also scale it with with computers instead of just people? So I recommend that. Um, a, a good counterpoint is Blue Apron went public and has not been as successful. So you know, reading their S one, it's really interesting because you know it, it's not as strong and it's not as clear that they're actually. You know, getting in front of this kind of churn problem, um, so uh, that's a good one. Um, and then, if you're you're interested in the food delivery area, uh, Grubhub is public, and I find their public stuff to be very interesting uh, as well, and uh, a good read. And, and going back to this one, and even their quarterly updates are are. are fascinating to read. So, so hopefully that gives you something to chew on. Uh, It is hard to find a lot of like the previous, you know, a couple of folks asked about CAC LTV out there. Um, You know, I like reading it from a case study perspective because it really kind of gives you an idea of how these teams are thinking about things. And, and I learned like a thousand things from reading these S1s. So, so I think that's one of the best areas uh, to go research the subscription program if, if you're interested in that.
1: Yep, and uh, it just occurred to me, there's one other point we kind of touched on on the last Western Call episode that I'll just reiterate. Um, There's certain segments uh, that are much more mature in subscriptions. And so that's professional services and digital subscriptions, right? So think Netflix, um, Amazon Prime, uh, you know, uh, subscriptions to publishing companies, Wall Street Journal, newspaper, all those sorts of things. Um, and if you look at how those industry evolves, a couple interesting things have happened. Um, these aggregators have emerged, uh, because customers have subscription fatigue and their subscriptions are fragmented everywhere and it's really annoying. So you now have Amazon with a service where you do all your media subscriptions through them and they give you a single dashboard to turn on and off subscriptions and control them. Um, Apple just launched a very similar offering, uh, the financial institutions have noticed that people lock in all these subscriptions. They spend a fortune, and they don't tend to use a lot of the subscriptions. So every budgeting tool out there, like Mint, like a big feature that they offer is identifying all these recurring costs and convincing you to turn off all the ones that you probably aren't using. Um, and I think that's now a national television campaign for um, Wells Fargo is they have a feature in their mobile app called Control Tower, which is all about helping people like turn off the the dearth of subscriptions they signed up for and aren't getting value from so um like if you uh use that as sort of a time machine and you you know it's it's probably unlikely in the future you want a a coffee subscription with one vendor and a um a water filter subscription with another vendor and you know and have all these things coming on different schedules and on different payment periods and you know it wouldn't uh, to me, that's one of Amazon's subscribe and save's big advantages is they're sort of the de facto uh, everything subscription aggregator for physical goods. How
0: many active subscriptions do you have, Jason? Uh,
1: so I'll be honest. I am not the biggest uh, personal fan of that. Like, there, It's huge convenience, but I do find that I waste a lot of money when I do those subscriptions and stuff tends to pile up. So I'm not a huge fan. Um, my My wife does a lot of our <laughs> household management and she's way more organized than me so she uses a bunch um and i I couldn't tell you how many she has
0: cool there's a guy at work that has like around 20 and he has an amazon credit card and so so they've gotten every kind of replenishable thing in their house they have like a bunch of kids uh kind of come from amazon and, and uh you know he's done some calculus on it and it's like the optimal savings for it all leveraged on the on the amazon prime card
1: Yeah. Side note. Um, we've taken probably uh, a deeper dive in this answer than we intended to, but, um, the today, most of these subscriptions and most auto replenishment is what I call explicit. Like you go and sign up for something and you have to ask for it and pull it. And then it starts coming until you get around to turning it off. Um, but I do think the future for a lot of this physical goods are implicit replenishment where, um, if, if you do most of your spending on Amazon or you do most of your purchases on Walmart, like they, they just get enough data about your habits to proactively send you the stuff when you need it without you even having to ask. And both Walmart and Amazon have, have various packet uh, patents on this, this idea of uh, predictive shipping. And I, it, uh, it, it, it does seem to me that like, the combination of big data and artificial intelligence in this space that like there, there's going to be a near future when um, a lot more of this purchasing is autonomous. And the reason that's interesting to me is um, you know, when you never have to think about ordering toilet paper again or buying toilet paper, because your your house just always has the right amount of toilet paper. Um, what do all the physical stores that today have an entire aisle of the grocery store dedicated to toilet paper do with that space? So like, there's an interesting challenge for brick and mortar retailers in the future as auto replenishment gets more
0: dominant. All right. Question number eight comes from Parker block. Uh, he always throws curveballs. We appreciate that Parker. Uh, this one came from LinkedIn. Uh, Hey Jason Scott, what do you see as likely business implications of rising appetite for antitrust action bum, bum, on platforms, which monetize consumer data? Um, uh I think we teased this a little bit in the last episode, but uh a lot of the platforms, especially the ones with user generated content like facebook twitter google slash youtube um, they rely on the section of law called section two thirty, which essentially makes them the same as a utility like like a phone line um, you know if you if you say something on the phone line. That could be hate speech or something like that you know it it's not a t and t's job to monitor that so so they essentially say we're not a newspaper where i you you have liability around uh what is it libel and what's the other one uh one's written uh one's spoken Slander. So anyway. Slander. Yeah, libel and slander. <laughs> you can be sued if you say the wrong thing. So you have to be very careful with what you say. That's why they have fact checkers. They say, look, this is just a platform. We're just kind of here uh, and stuff happens. Um, but as they increasingly are kind of changing and, and you know kicking people off for what they say, uh, it is interesting to see... Should they still be within section two thirty so that that's one interesting area. another one is you know we 've seen Europe get really aggressive with these do not follow laws um the uh, what is the g d p r and uh you know all these kinds of things i I do think there's going to be increasing appetite um, what scares me i 'm not hugely political and you know The the times I kind of watch that stuff, you always shake your head like when Zuckerberg was in front of Congress and they had like no idea, you know, the the, the problem is our representatives have no idea how this stuff works and and they're going to be so slow to to do anything. I, I just, I'm not, you know, I'm not optimistic that it makes any sense whatever they'll do. So we'll have to see. Um, the other interesting thing I will say is there's a lot of people, uh, Scott Galloway is really big on this on kind of breaking up Amazon. Uh, and there's a lot of people kind of gunning for Amazon. It, it's not really in the spirit of your question, which is around customer data. Just, you know, I'm sure Jason has deeper thoughts on that, but the, the clever thing about amazon is you know when you have a monopoly there has to be someone a consumer being hurt you know usually you have rising prices when you have a monopoly with like the power company or something um amazon has lowered prices so uh and you know if you look at you know their ownership of retail it's very small e-commerce they're at 50 percent, so yeah that's pretty big but you know you have walmart kind of swinging at them. And if you you took antitrust action at Amazon, you'd almost certainly have to Walmart because Walmart has such a big share of, much bigger share of offline. I don't know. I I feel like Amazon's probably gonna be okay. And I think, you know, Facebook, Google, and Twitter are probably more in the crosshairs because of this section 230 stuff. And then the fact these ad models are built off of tracking you across the internet. I I think they kind of have double risk there that will be interesting to watch
1: yeah so the way I sort of think of it there's um a couple categories of regulation like there there are business models um that various government entities uh might want to influence by writing new laws and so that's what all this privacy stuff is right like there uh you know uh Europe isn't trying to um enforce some some fifty year old privacy law um uh, against Google and Facebook, they wrote a new law called g d p r specifically to change the behavior about how companies uh collect consumer data and use it um the you know there are lots of new laws that get proposed for you know regulating energy companies and and how they influence the earth and all these various things, so a lot of these companies have risk. That that various com- countries will pass new laws. So Europe obviously passed a big law in the GDPR that has meaningful impact on how um, we all do uh, data collection for people and personalization. Um, there's a proposed law in California called the California Consumer Privacy Act, um, which is very similar to GDPR. Um, and so, if that goes into effect, um, you know, it, it's sort of difficult to treat customers in California wildly different than the rest of the United States. And California is such a big market that it could, it could potentially have the effect of having companies serving U S consumers behaving very similar to companies that are serving European consumers because they, uh, they just won't want to risk getting sideways from the, the CCPA. So, um, I do think that, uh, the biggest impact of those kinds of regulations is, companies change self-moderating their behaviors to not make it a necessity for a legislator to pass these laws. And it's like, you know, legislative bodies aren't super efficient. It's really hard to pass, pass laws, frankly. And so, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have big expectation that like the U S Congress is going to, you know, suddenly the house and Senate are going to agree on a bunch of stuff and pass a bunch of new, new regulation. Um, and so it's, it's more that they're going to threaten regulation and that causes, companies to like somewhat moderate their behavior. Um, it's absolutely true that Europe is more aggressive in this right in regulation right now. And so like, it's more likely that you, that European regulation affects us companies than, than you know, that we're going to see a huge wave of new us regulation. So, um, that's my long winded answer on writing new laws. And then per, per Scott's point, um, in the case of companies that whose primary business model is selling stuff to consumers, there already is regulation in place. That's called the antitrust laws. It's the Sherman act. Um, and so it's, it's less about Congress writing a new law that would have some negative impact on Amazon and more about how the, the U S antitrust laws, um, affect Amazon. And per Scott's point, um, the, the laws are, like arguably somewhat outdated, uh, you, you both have to be a monopoly and despite how big Amazon is, they're really not, um, a, the majority of very many markets, right? Like they might be the the largest bookseller in the U S. Um, so, so digital books could be a, a potential market. If you could get a court to agree that e-commerce is a market separate from retail, then, you know, you could argue that they are a plurality, um, even then there'd be arguments that they really aren't because even though we say they're 50% of e-commerce, that doesn't include some, some huge businesses like um, marketplaces and porn and all these other things. Um, The, and then the second problem per Scott's point is once you're a, a a monopolist, you, you have to do behavior that negatively affects consumers and in the U S antitrust law, that behavior is you have to raise prices. And so you can't just make an argument that oh my gosh Amazon's reducing choice and that is fundamentally bad for consumers. In Europe they have antitrust laws like that. And so it's it's you know frankly at the moment a lot more likely that um, European regulators like impact how Amazon can grow as they get as big in Europe as they are here. Than it is that US antitrust law is going to be very effective against Amazon because they just, they both don't look like a, a monopolist and then they, they don't uh, sort of trigger any of the hot buttons of, of the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act.
0: All righty, number nine. This comes from Baxter Overman. How do you put consumers at ease with in home delivery services, i.e., Walmart grocery? Wouldn't drop off when the consumer is home for certain items or lockers be easier to sell?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, so one service that just got announced in the last couple of weeks or evolved in the last couple of weeks is this Walmart delivered a fridge. Right? And that's kind of what I think of when um, when you ask this question. And so the, the principle here is, hey, you order milk from Walmart. You don't want that like sitting on the on the curb for eight hours while you're at work. Um, and so Walmart has this offering where where like using an electronic lock. They have permission to go in your house. They go into your kitchen and they have employees that are trained um, to put away your groceries for you, including putting the perishables in the fridge. Um, and the, the this was a, a big deal they made at their shareholder meeting a couple of weeks ago, and they had a, a a video of Mark Laurie doing the first delivery, and uh, when they first proposed this service like a year ago, the idea was that they would install cameras in the customer's home and the customer would be able to monitor the delivery guy on the camera. Um, this year what the evolution is, the delivery guys wear a body cam. And so you can watch everything the delivery guy is doing while he's in your house. So they had Mark Laurie wearing a body, body cam, delivering uh, groceries to a consumer's house. Um, and I do think some of those tactics like the body cam can help, um, instill trust. Like I do think there's a major trust issue here. Like I don't think the Walmart service is going to be a a huge mainstream service. I think there's some niches where it might appeal to. Um, but I always chuckle because, um, in this Walmart video, like the intent is see Mark's wearing a body cam so you can trust him. So you have nothing to worry about. And in my head, I'm thinking, uh, Mark Laurie is worth like $2 billion. The one guy that's not likely to steal any of my stuff. (laughs)
0: <laughs> is is yeah.
1: hard. like he probably didn't need a camera like there's probably nothing in my house that he wants that he doesn't already have um so that that's my my sarcastic answer um but the hire real billionaires. if you hire billionaires problem solved yeah yeah so women's the just the deliveries. not enough of them exactly I, I feel like cuban would do some deliveries um but uh you like trust is the big impediment here. Um, and, and so you see lots of interim steps. Like uh, Amazon has this very robust program called Amazon Key. And it both has a version where guys can open the smart lock and put stuff just inside your door. They put stuff inside your door as opposed to all the way in your kitchen. So they're, it's slightly less invasive. And so maybe you trust them more. Um, but the I've been told that the big version of Key that's really popular is customers aren't willing to give give Amazon delivery drivers access to their home, but they're willing to give them access to the garage. So, and a lot more customers have an electronic garage door opener and then have an electronic lock on their front door. So there's lots of places where the Amazon delivery guy can deliver the packages inside your garage. um, And that's easier to have trust in. Uh, There's also a business to business component to key where Amazon installs lockers in um, commercial buildings and obviously, you have a lot more trust giving uh, giving a delivery guy access to your secure lobby than you do your individual house. So I feel like there are all these different tiers of trust. But the one thing I would say is, over time, as these services get more popular and more people use them and have good experiences, there's an opportunity for trust to grow. And so when Uber and Lyft first launched, trust was a huge impediment. Am I going to get in some random stranger's car um, today we all um, know lots of other people that successfully use Uber, and so it seems less scary. And and you know even more so with Airbnb, um, as we have more people in our networks that regularly use Airbnb and have good outcomes, it feels more, uh, safer to me. And so in the same way, if if uh, Walmart is able to find a a, a decent sized niche that's willing to do this refrigerator delivery service and they have a good output. They'll probably share that experience with their neighbors and friends, and you could see the service grow and get more trustworthy over time.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't really have anything to add. Beautiful answer. Thanks, man. Number 10, also from LinkedIn. Uh, this comes from Akash Gupta. And what's your favorite app that you've downloaded in the last few months? Hmm. That's a good question. Jason, you go, you start this one. Sure.
1: So my contrarian answer is I don't like apps. Um, the There's all kinds of data that we like apps have huge um, abandonment rate. Uh, and so for most clients, I'm actually advocating, they build really good mobile websites that replace the functionality of an app. And that's using a technology called progressive web app. So that's my sort of boring work answer. Um, in my personal life, the app that I recently downloaded that I had no idea existed, that's been really useful for me is, um, it's actually a plugin for the mobile browsers, so it's a plugin called Screenshots, and essentially le- what it lets me do is when I'm on a mobile web page, um, it lets me take a screenshot of the entire web page, not just the the part that's visible above the fold. And so, it, for work a lot, I need screenshots of an entire entire page, and so uh, this was an, a new find for me that I, I tend to be using a lot, but uh i'm not that could be pretty niche.
0: yeah i like that that's good um i would say at uh at spiffy we use this thing called gecko board and they just updated their app and i think that's my newest app and uh so it gives me all my kpis in one one kind of screen uh which is nice, nice.
1: what's uh, the app for the star wars experience in um at disney i feel like that should be our favorite app
0: Uh, probably galaxy's edge. I don't, I don't know if it's app based or not. Yeah. I I did download the Amazon go, uh, store app recently. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. This is just a comment, uh, over on Twitter, Natalie Dillon, uh, and she is uh, at Maverin, which, uh, you'll like this, Jason, that's the VC firm started by Howard Schultz founder of Starbucks to invest in consumer oriented companies um she mentioned us as one of her top podcasts i thought it was a typo at first but I, i'm pretty sure she actually meant us so wow i was
1: speechless that's very cool and natalie if you're listening i'd like to think that i've i've some i've partially funded your child's uh college education so thank you very much for that through,
0: through the starbucks usage exactly yeah i think we're an lp effectively at this point uh uh, question number 12 this comes from our friend Ted down in Austin he said uh, make sure Jason talks about mixed use retail entertainment I don't know what that is but I'm glad you get to answer <laughs> uh,
1: yeah I mean so in general like in the the 1960s when the mall was first invented the the appeal of the mall was there are a bunch of stores aggregated that you all wanted to get uh, get to and so you know we built a big building and surrounded it with a a giant parking lot and, and put a bunch of stores together. Um, and over time, uh, we added things to that mall that made it even that gave customers another reason to go and spend more time there. So for those indoor malls, that was things like ice rinks and movie theaters and food courts. Um, and as the, the collection of those stores has become less and less appealing and it's been less and less valuable to draw traffic just by, uh, this assortment of stores. Um, a lot of these venues have had to get more persuasive with the non-retail things that they put in malls. So, you know, the food courts have, have, often been replaced or augmented with more significant fine dining. Um, and, uh, today, like a mixed use mall almost certainly means like in addition to shopping and entertainment, um, that there's probably a residential component too. Um, and so, you know, you can live in an apartment building, um, that's like upstairs from the stores or adjacent to the stores. And like, I would argue even, uh, Hudson yard is, a a classic example of a mixed use space. Um, there's both a significant residential component, um, with these various uh, condo towers that are adjacent to it. Like, and there's these entertainment features in it, like the sky deck and, the uh, the, the stairway installation, whose name I'm forgetting at the moment. Um, and so in general, new successful shopping destinations, uh, tend to have the, this, this, uh, Sort of multi-use uh, component and uh, less focus on shopping being the only reason that you'd go visit it. So I assume that's what Ted's talking about, and you, you won't see many new malls built that aren't like very focused on the the other traffic generation activities and the other revenue streams besides shopping. Hudson yard. So you're talking about? Well, but yeah, but what's the name of the
0: the vessel? Vessel. Thank you. Yes, take a walk in the vessel. Uh. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, Michelle Grant has a twofer. One is: Should Amazon be worried about broken up? I feel like we asked and answered that one. Did you want to comment on that, Jason? I think
1: we we covered it pretty well. I, like uh, based on current U.S. antitrust law, I think Amazon has very little risk. Like they, I think like potentially digital books could be an area where you could see some enforcement. Or um, uh, like I might have said like Amazon Web Services is it greater risk um but you know i feel like uh google and microsoft have made enough traction lately that that you know that that probably isn't immediate uh if amazon were to get as big in europe as they are in the us uh it, it would be a more interesting question but, but uh like of the fang companies in the us i think amazon has a lot less to worry about from regulation than does a facebook or google
0: cool um and then uh this is clearly in your wheelhouse cuz it's got the o word um your jason what are your thoughts on pricing strategy in an omni channel world where price transparency is high and filled with bots to find the lowest price
1: uh yeah um so the, uh, <laughs> there is a bunch of controversy about pricing right now like lots of um omni channel retailers don't have universal pricing. Um, so they might have a different price in every store. The online price might be different than the store price. Um, you know, a complicated retailer like Walmart, there could be five prices for every item. There could be a store price. There could be a ship to home price. There could be a, a ship to store price. There could be a pickup in store price and an online grocery pickup price. Um, And, uh, you know, Walmart slogan is, is uh, uh, everyday low prices. Well, if there are five prices for everything, spoiler alert, four of them are not the low one. Um, And so, you know, most retailers today, like have these fragmented pricing models. uh, And I believe uh, that Trust is such a big deal moving forward and there's so much uh, information and transparency available as a result of digital and the web that I feel like it's inevitable that all retailers are going to get forced to adopt a much more transparent pricing model, which generally means a much more universal pricing model. So you're not going to get away with um, having a different price in the stores than you do online and hoping the customer just doesn't catch you. Um, so in general, we'll see more universal pricing, um, but you probably at the same time will see that price change a lot more based on um, real world market circumstances, and so you'll see a lot more dynamic pricing. Um, but it won't be secret prices that are changing without you knowing it. Like I think retailers, will, you know, tend to be transparent about that. And and to me, the best example today is is Amazon. They, they have a super dynamic pricing model. It changes all the time, but if you put something in your cart and the price goes down, they don't just take that extra margin. They tell you, and they lower the price of the item in your cart. And when you, you know, go to their stores, they now have digital prices in all the stores so they can show you the same price online that they have in the store. So I, um, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult for retailers to make changes like this and break down silos. So we're not going to see it happen overnight, but I think we're, we're already starting to see retailers shift in that direction. So to me, the future is universal,
0: transparent, dynamic pricing. Wow. All right. Melissa Burdick had a whole bunch of questions. I'm going to lightning round a couple of them. Um, uh, When is Spiffy coming to Seattle? Stay tuned. Can Scott please update his Amazon scape and how has it changed? Uh, unfortunately, there's an inverse correlation between my time to work on the Amazon scape and your first question, you coming to Seattle. So um, I am in a position where I don't have a ton of time to work on that. Uh, it's changed a lot. You know, so I think Amazon's probably launched. So it's about a year old, I would say two programs a month, 24 to 30 programs since I did that. Um, So like the Amazon prime wardrobe isn't on there. Uh, The four star store is not on there. There's a lot not on there. One day delivery. Yes. Those are not on there. Um, I have no
1: cars in Seattle. So between those two, I'm going to vote for the Amazon scape.
0: Okay. Maybe, maybe uh, I'll find an intern. This is one of our many interns can help with this. Uh, this should be an interesting one. Is Amazon going to do to Walgreens, you know, let's say drugstores, uh, what they did to the bookstore uh, with the acquisition of PillPack and private label, and enable the ability to sell mass CPG profit- profitably? You think they're going for the drugstores? Uh,
1: I think it. I mean, they're they're going for everything. Um, so it is a market like that. They've made some investments in. Uh, they've already like. I think had some material effects on valuations for those tr- traditional companies. Um, I, I'm not sure, like, I mean, there's a, uh, Jeff has a, a quip that I kind of like and agree with. Um, Amazon didn't put bookstores out of business. The internet put bookstores out of business. Um, and I think the same may partly be true for retail pharmacies. Um, like I'm sure Amazon's going to take a uh, go after and take a chunk of the pharmacy business, and that will be derogatory to traditional pharmacies. But the bigger deal is we're shifting from picking up prescriptions in store to having prescriptions delivered to our home. So increasingly, the overwhelming majority of all the prescriptions we take are um, chronic for chronic conditions and recurring things. And, uh, the insurance companies are basically mandating that we all get shipped, um, these bigger quantities of those prescriptions at home. So as a smaller percentage of prescriptions get picked up in store, there's less traffic in those stores. Um, the only reason people go to those stores is prescriptions. They're not good retailers if they don't have prescriptions. And so like, I feel like that trend, um, that macro trend, uh, is really going to dramatically affect the retail pharmacy space. Now, most of the retail pharmacies have already pivoted. They own insurance companies um, and mail order uh, prescription services. So that seems like where they're putting their big bets. Um, And uh, while I'm sure Amazon will have some success in pharmacy and and, uh, probably some innovative products, uh, I'm not sure that's one where they're going to capture uh, huge markets share super fast because there is a bunch of uh, regulation and um, sort of power in the hands of individual insurance companies that, that, uh, you know, are some institutional impediments that make it a, a, a harder market to dominate than say books was not saying they won't get there, but it would take longer.
0: Yeah. My, my take on that is when I go to a drugstore, um, I stand in line and I there's usually you know more helpers than customers but there's only one person at checkout the person five people in front of me has a thousand questions and it takes me an hour to get something that should take me 5 minutes so I feel like there's a huge customer service kind of customer experience gap there that that amazon could definitely fill and, and is going to go at it because it's very clearly something that they could make a huge improvement on cool um this is a good one jason how are we doing on time i think we are coming up uh to the end all right uh Melissa can't get to all your questions, but let's end on, on a big one. Um, let's uh, Can you talk about the advertising race to grab the wallet? We've seen some big news lately. Target in talks to buy Triad. Uh, Walmart's bringing advertising in-house and made a key hire there. Um, where is everything going for ads? Uh, is it going to be a war for brand the brand's wallet? Is everyone going to take a page from the Amazon playbook, bring ads in-house and move to self-service performing kind of model? Um, and then kind of, correlated to that. Um, she has a, a, a chart she included from business insider, um, that, that shows kind of the percent of us ad spend by platform. Uh, and it looks, you know, she's kind of asking where Amazon's growing their ad business. You know, uh, I think it's over hundred percent year over year still. Um, where's it coming from? Uh, is it kind of incremental or is it coming out of, you know, Google's hide or Facebook, et cetera? Uh, since you're the chief strategy, Digital retail ad officer. I will let you jump in on that one, Jason. <laughs>
1: uh, uh, quick disclaimer: ads are nowhere in my title, so I'm I'm going to be expecting a raise when they add that one. Um, the so I, the 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 starting point here is uh, that it's very difficult to run a profitable e-commerce business. And so most, most omni-channel retailers that sell stuff online, um, are looking for every opportunity they can to improve their economics. Um, and as Amazon has demonstrated, uh, ad revenue, um, to monetize the traffic and eyeballs on that website is a, uh, a significant opportunity, um, to to uh, improve the monetization of the site so like obviously amazon's had a bunch of success uh you know walmart has had a program for a long time as, as melissa alluded to they sort of fired their vendor and brought that function in-house um to sort of double down on it and we're seeing them make a more concerted effort to to pull more more advertising on uh on walmart.com and there's now a rumor that, that target will buy the vendor that, that uh, Walmart fired um, and use them as an in-house entity for, for target advertising. Um, so all, none of those things are surprising. They all make sense. All these sites want to monetize their, their traffic as as much as they can. Um, the one thing I will say here though is, um I sometimes think that, that retail ads are a little overblown. Um, and, uh, it like, I think there's some self-limiting things. So when, uh, Amazon has way more e-commerce traction than anyone else and they're the big site, like that they're legitimately getting people to spend money on ads that they weren't spending before. Um, because they uh, all these brands want visibility on this new Amazon platform, um, but as all retailers get serious about this and they all start collecting ad revenue what what tends to happen is this is mostly a zero sum game. Um, brands have been spending money for for fifty years on shopper marketing inside of Walmart stores and target stores, and the the budgets for those ads are a percentage of the sales of their product from that Target and Walmart sell. So you know you're you know going to sell $100 million of razor blades at Walmart and you reserve 3% of that for in-store co-op that, that you can spend with Walmart on ads inside the Walmart store. Um, so when all of the digital eyeballs are on one site and it's not Walmart, you might spend some extra dollars on Amazon site. But when all the sites are getting traffic, what you tend to do is you just say, all right, the... The three percent I was spending in stores, I'm going to shift that to online. And so, while that might look good for the monet the the website monetization unit at Walmart, it's actually a zero sum game for Walmart. They were getting three percent of the Razor Blade sales as advertising revenue before, and they're getting it again. Um, and as as more retailers have better advertising platforms, like they're all going to get the fair share of those dollars. Um, and even the the chart that Melissa shared, like I look at most of these charts that sort of are surveys of how people are spending their, their ad dollars. And my experience is, um, that there's no one person at any brand that knows where they spend all their money. So I have tons of clients where multiple entities at that client all bid on the same keywords on Google and drive each other up, um, and so I can assure you, if you surveyed any of those stakeholders and said, "What's your total spend on Google?" they actually don't know they only know what their silos spend is on Google um, and so you you talk to a given person in one place then he you know didn't spend much on Amazon last year, and he's spending more this year and so it looks like a big ad um, but if you really look at it um, comprehensively across the whole organization um, it doesn't feel like people are taking dollars they used to spend on a Super Bowl commercial and instead investing that on Walmart or Target. So like um, I think that the, the ads on these sites are here to stay. Um, but to a certain extent it's a zero sum game and we're just seeing shopper marketing dollars shift from in-store to online. Um, and, you know, in the early days, Amazon, you know, probably got a disproportionate amount of those dollars, but on a go forward basis, they're fifty percent of e-commerce. They'll probably get fifty percent of the, the digital ad budgets from uh, digital retail ad budgets from from these various uh, uh, brands. So, um, I like I think it it might normalize out. We'll see.
0: Cool. Well, I think that's gonna wrap it for listener questions. We really appreciate everyone donating your questions. It, it's uh, always a challenge to try to answer everything, and hopefully, we got tears. Absolutely. And uh, uh, certainly, if you disagree with any of our answers
1: or or you missed anything, Scott and I both love to learn. So please uh, leave us a note on uh, Facebook or Twitter and uh, we'll continue the dialogue there. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing,
0: subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.